Hello, you're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today I'm going to talk about patching. Yes, it's a hot topic. <laughs> it is. And there's a lot of people that have some challenges getting it done effectively. I've had quite a bit of a hot demand from some followers uh, on LinkedIn to talk specifically about patching. Let's talk a little bit about the exchange hafnium attack that probably compromised near on 100% of the exchange servers that exist on the planet that were simultaneously exposed to the internet. And then talk uh, briefly about multiple significant security failures with ubiquity wireless access points. So I'm just going to start with the ubiquity thing because it won't take very long. Myself and other engineers here at QPC for years, we have not liked that product set. It has not felt like the right fit for a variety of reasons. One of the, re one of the ways that we choose technology is also by evaluating what's called counterparty risk and how much do we trust the company itself, the manufacturer, and the leadership of that particular company. And Ubiquity just never passed our security assessment tests. And so sure enough, recently, this all kind of came to fruition as, you know, the instincts that you have and the testing and the R&D that you do, it sometimes actually ends up coming to fruition as being publicly published reasons why you should have never utilized the technology. So first off, um, just from a technical perspective, anybody who is a hardcore network security engineer is probably not going to like ubiquity assets simply because they lack a lot of the sophisticated controls and features that we find normal, normal, you know, things that we would expect to be there. And so when you're working on a piece of technology like that, you get frustrated and saying, well, gee, why can't I just do that? So that's one of the reasons that uh, people who are real hardcore network security engineers would have stayed away from those. But um, what became uh, public recently was that there was a massive breach where an attacker had gained access to Ubiquity's cloud-hosted uh, back-end resources where Ubiquity was the breach vector themselves and the attackers were able to get the cryptographic secrets for single sign-on cookies, remote access, full source code control contents, and they exfiltrated the code signing keys. Now, if you remember the SolarWinds attack, one of the things that was involved there was code signing certificates. So, um, <laughs> anyways, it, it just, you know, you get really frustrated by companies that have extensive resources and that, you know, you are relying upon them to allocate those resources in ways where these issues are prevented and that you expect them to not 
engage in what I would call multiple fails. So uh, we're going to link an article to this that talks in more depth for you. But it, the best way I would characterize it is a multiple fail scenario and a multiple layers, multiple layers of poor handling of the incident. And to me, it's just confirmation as to why we really didn't ever want to use that, that technology because we could never trust them as a counterparty. Uh, so let's move on to the exchange hafnium attack. I'm sure everyone on this planet has heard of the hafnium attack. Uh, certainly, I know 75-year-old retired personnel that have heard of the exchange hafnium attack. So <laughs> that pretty much so means I'm guessing everybody with the Internet's heard about it. And it is actually possible to set up exchange servers and really, frankly, web servers in general to make them much harder to attack, much less vulnerable to breaches such as this. So let's talk very briefly about one of the things that you would do as a risk mitigation approach is to have an internal company policy that just literally is specifying what you will and will not store in email and how much retention in email there is going to be. I have a very, very difficult time making a legitimate argument for a 25 gig or larger mailbox. Uh, in fact, my mailbox is no larger than four gig. And that is because I do not think that email is a file server. The more you put in email, the more there is that is an opportunity to be compromised. So if a company is looking to reduce their overall risk profile, then that would be step number one. And that should be part of an overall strategy of having a data classification plan, retention policies, and those sorts of things in effect. Now, then let's look at one another factor here. Because there seems to be a barrier to getting things secured, which also sometimes involves patching. And this, by the way, was one of the topics that came up on last week's Huntress event called Hackit 2021, of which I was one of the guest speakers. And one of the issues that was brought up was how we as IT folks are oftentimes pushing for patching and patching in a timely fashion or creating planned outages so that we can implement security improvements in, uh, you know, at times that are going to, yeah, sure, it may impact the users a bit, but compared to your, all your stuff just got hacked, I mean, it's not even remotely comparable in terms of a, a risk issue, you know, or an economic adverse impact to the business. So if an, the more an organization refuses to have an appetite and a willingness to create and allow reasonable patch windows and not just this whole, well, we're going to do it every Sunday from 7 a.m. to noon, which I'm sorry, that just really doesn't work in a lot of cases. There may be an out-of-band patch that's coming on a Wednesday. 
and there may be systems that you need to patch in the middle of the day. Uh, just any number of factors. If you've got, like, for example, let's just look at the exchange hafnium attack. If you knew this thing was in the wild, wouldn't you be making an aggressive attempt to be patching that server, like, right now? I would hope so. And that's the part where there needs to be support from the executive management team to facilitate or to allow the IT department to just send out a bulk email to everyone. Let that, you know, get delivered for the next 10 minutes or so, so that, you know, people could have received that email and then say, hey, guess what? It's going down for the next hour. It's going down for the next 15 minutes or it's going down for the next half hour, whatever the heck it is, right? I'm not saying don't communicate, and I'm not saying don't warn people and don't manage their expectations. Yes, absolutely do all of those things. But when an organization at the executive management team level does not say, yes, uh, we are going to allow an outage in email so that we can have a security improvement put in place, then my perception is that they either are not serious about security or they have an unrealistic expectation of the uptime of that service based upon the infrastructure that is deployed. So let me explain that. If you have this really super mega high uptime requirement like, oh, we can't be without email but yet you're running an on-premise exchange server that is not in a cluster server configuration and you don't have a database availability group on the back end, then how serious are you about exchange uptime? I mean, you know, if email is that important to you that you're not willing to have an outage of what more than five minutes, for example, and or your only time that you're allow, going to allow an outage is, I don't know, Sunday evening at 10 p.m. or something ridiculous like that. And I do say ridiculous because the vast majority of companies are small to medium businesses and those organizations do not have full-time internal staff that have the capabilities to do all of the security hardening as well as all of the components that sit in front of that exchange server, for example. So you're then relying upon, you know, external experts. And I'm going to be blunt here. If you're going to be asking an external expert to be doing something at Sunday evening at 10 p.m., you're going to be paying double time. So I kind of, again, go back to this whole realm of how unwilling are you to create a change window, an outage window, at a reasonable time frame? What I have found is that the companies who do take security seriously uh, and are um, they, they have adjusted their expectations to be realistic, what they do is they say, you know what, look, we can work with our staff, we're going to communicate to our staff that, you know, they may not have consistently available email from, you know, Friday at noon till whatever, midnight, right? That it may be intermittent connectivity. 
So find something else to do then. And by the way, there are mechanisms that can be used and are typically used by IT to ensure that there is no inbound email lost in this process. So don't think for a second that you have to air quote, have that server up or, oh, you're going to lose email. That isn't the case at all. If anybody's ever put up an email server without a caching system sitting in front of it to ingest those inbound emails and then to deliver them on to the server and verify that they've actually been received before they're cleared in the cache, I mean, that's just as far as I'm concerned, an incompetent implementation. So there should never be a situation where you're losing the inbound emails. And in terms of outbound emails, if you've got an end user who's connected to a mailbox and they type up an email and hit the send box or the send button, it's going to sit in the outbox until it can actually be processed and delivered into a message queue. Okay. So see, losing email is just not really, that's just really not going to happen. I mean, that's not something that I would figure is a risk factor because there are ways that we all deal with that effectively. Okay, so these companies that I work with that do have a reasonable expectation about cost profile of high availability and after hours change windows and stuff like that, they've always been very accommodating and reasonable because they understand that it isn't just our time but the upstream support company, the software manufacturer, they also have evening and weekend rates that that customer doesn't want to pay. Which, so let's just say $175 an hour is the daytime rate. You could be upwards of $350 an hour for evenings and weekends. So, my gut, my gut feel is that if you're willing to pay $350 an hour for something like that, then maybe you ought to actually should have put in the technology to have some redundancy in the server infrastructure such that you could work on one component while the end users interacted with the other, you know. So these issues contribute to this almost seemingly ubiquitous problem where, I mean, look at, look at the Equifax breach. They're like, well, we can't patch the servers because we can't take them down. Executive management won't let us take down the servers. So what do you end up with? You end up with unpatched servers or you end up with servers that don't have adequate protection sitting in front of them. So if we look specifically at this Hafnium attack, there are a number of things that could have been put in place. I'm not going to say they're easy. They require some definite work. I mean, it's a significant project to put it in, but it's definitely in the realm of possibility and it's not financial unobtainium to do it. It's just a matter of applying some quality, you know, consulting labor to the effort to get it done. And one of those things would have been uh, a reverse proxy sitting in front of that exchange server and doing deep packet inspection on all the TLS traffic, which would have then allowed for IPS signature inspection of that content, if nothing else. Now with a, a reverse proxy or with proxies in general, you can do things like RFC checking. I've talked before on the show about 
why I think it's so crucial that DNS proxies should be used because DNS is a very popular data exfiltration mechanism. Most people don't proxy DNS because it requires quite a bit of horsepower to do it, but if the bad guys know they can just load up a DNS packet and that you don't have your DNS destinations restricted, well then they can exfiltrate tons of data out of your network just over you know, TCP and UDP 53. So a much better approach is to actually proxy that DNS traffic. This allows you to do certain packet drops, RFC checking, and certainly if there's something that is a data exfiltration that's going on, it's not going to look like an RFC compliant DNS request. <laughs> I've seen these things, it's pretty darn funny. And in terms of like network layer security monitoring, the network security admins could even set up alarming for that and then collect those alarms and say, well, oh, what's going on here? So detecting attempts to exfiltrate data over the DNS you know, vector can also be picked up if you have a DNS proxy in effect. Of course, you can control the destinations too and, <clears throat> and you should. So now another thing that you could do in front of an exchange server that would have completely just eliminated the, the opportunity for this Hafnium attack would have been to put up an access portal in front of it. So if you have to, and I'm telling you about these techniques because it's not just a matter of, oh, let's go back and fix your exchange servers, but these techniques can frankly be used for anything that is a web-based or whatever-based application that you're trying to present to the internet. You know, if you wanted to have a remote desktop services portal you could put an access portal in front of it. So the access portal would basically be something that remote users would connect to. They would go through a multi-factor authentication process. And after being validated through MFA, that user would only be allowed to access the resources that were granted to them based upon their group memberships. And I'm not talking about NTFS permissions here, people. I'm talking about other types of group memberships that say, you know, think about it in terms of opening up various traffic pathways, such as you authenticate, and yes, now you can get to OWA or you authenticate and you can get to some, you know, RDP session base hosted business line application, any number of those things. But setting up that stuff with either reverse proxies or access portals and reverse proxies and multi-factor authentication, it's quite a bit of work and complexity to do it, but the payoff is phenomenal because what level of sophistication of attack vector does the bad guy then have to go through in order to get that, in order to compromise that. So it was kind of interesting on the uh, the Hunteress Hackett 2021 event that I participated in last week. One of the things that was um, amusing there was as we got into our discussions about multi-factor authentication methods, kind of each one of us that was one of the speakers was holding up our YubiKeys that we have. and you know, YubiKeys are a, an excellent multi-factor authentication mechanism because you have to, you know, it's, a, it's an out-of-band physical token authentication mechanism that it can't be hacked because 
it's a physical token versus a smartphone or the SM, you can have SIM jacking happen to you, for example, and then somebody gets your uh, ability to intercept your or reroute your SMS messages or just a phone call based authentication. And so one of the, these are one of the reasons why you can't be utilizing SMS-based authentication if you have an alternative. Now, granted, yes, there are some systems that are just not that sophisticated, maybe not as sophisticated as they should be or that we wish they were. But if you have an alternative, if you have an option to utilize a multi-factor authentication mechanism that is better than SMS, please, please do. And push notifications are quite secure and then, of course, the uh, type and the code notifications are secure, but push notifications are the most secure. Okay, let's uh, move on to this topic of patching. So on this Hackett 2021 event that I participated in, you know, a lot of security is around patching. And in the MSP industry, and for those of you that don't know, QPC is an MSSP. We're a managed security services provider. So we provide security services to other IT services providers as well as like co-managed IT departments and things like that. And so we provide a higher level of security than typically most MSPs do. And one of the topics that came up was this difficulty about ensuring that you have a comprehensive patch management strategy. Okay, so we've already talked about the, the barriers to patching, which usually end up coming from business units that don't have realistic expectations about uptime for assets. Right? If they have massive uptime requirements, then you need redundant resources. And if you don't have redundant resources, then your expectations are inaccurate. So why else are patches actually not getting deployed effectively or in a timely fashion? Well, frankly, a lot of it is because patching is an art form. There is no manual for how to do it effectively. It varies between environments some servers have personalities. The people who manage that environment have to create different cl classifications for different types of assets. You need to have staged patching going on, meaning you're not going to necessarily go into an environment and patch all the servers in one chunk. You're going to do it um, over a few days and you're going to do some servers one day, another more servers the next day, etc. Uh, which, by the way, is another reason why this whole attitude that says, well, Sunday 7 a.m. to noon is our change window. I'm sorry, that is just a bogus approach. And the reason I call bogus on that is because if your goal is to actually have the most stable, most resilient, highest uptime environment, then you're going to allow your IT services company to patch your least critical servers first on maybe Tuesday evening. And then you're going to let the second tier of critical servers be patched on the following day. 
and then you know maybe some other ones get done on Saturday or something you know but but the point is is you, it's if you say it can only be done on this weekend it can only be done in this certain time period you're just chopping yourself off at the knees in so many ways associated with actually getting patching done effectively like there's an awful lot of assets that we just literally patch utilizing three levels of automation I'm not kidding you here okay I'm not kidding you three levels of automation every single day which is why we have such high success rate with patching like every day we get a report that shows us what's patched and what's not patched so that way our NACTAX can go and look at those reports and see okay is that something that I expect going to patch tonight through the automation and okay well if I see the same thing on the report tomorrow then I got to start asking the question why you know and then they hunt it down why okay well maybe the machines offline how many days has it been offline why is it offline go hunt down the problem and get that machine patched now this is strictly software that I'm talking about for which automation exists there are also things called end-of-life deprecated applications that you can't patch. They're end-of-life. The software manufacturer isn't making patches for these things anymore. You can't patch them. You need a report. You need to be reporting on the vulnerability that's being created in the environment by this deprecated junk and get an action plan together to get it out of your environment. Catalog it. Write it down. Get the business decision makers involved. Go after the software vendors who are writing code for modern applications that are still reliant upon junk that's been deprecated since 2011. You got to start pounding on these people to get them to fix their junk software. Now, do you have mechanisms in place to audit what's being done with PowerShell? Are you restricting WMI? Do you have mechanisms in place to upgrade PowerShell every single time somebody reboots their computer? If not, you better get that automation in place. How frequently are you patching the physical machines, PCs and servers? And it's not just the physical machines in terms of firmware and BIOS, but how about firmware for hard drives, firmware for power supplies, uh, all of the integrated components, all the drivers? I saw, oh, I think this would have been January or February this year. There was an article that came out that was talking about a, a hot vulnerability that existed in NVIDIA. And I can tell you immediately what I did is I went into our platform where we have inventory of all the software on every single endpoint that we manage. And I wrote a little report and I looked in that report, show me everywhere where this NVIDIA software shows up. Bango, I get my report. I send that off to one of my knock techs and I say, take care of this, get this stuff patched, download the patched version of it get on that get on those machines and get this stuff patched and we had 100% of the machines patched within 24 hours okay but see our contracts with our clients for managed services basically say that we are the security experts we are going to be aware of their business needs and their business hours but ultimately it is our decision as to when that patch gets deployed so 
there it is because clients are engaging in a relationship with us for the purposes of us helping protect their environment and fundamentally you have the highest uptime when your environment is not hacked breached leaking data and being unstable so how do you get it to be stable it's by having security so if there's a known security vulnerability and you're going to take a laissez-faire sort of attitude towards closing that gap personally I find that to be a bit unacceptable so recap on the patching this is an extensive process and I mean you've got to check surveillance cameras and phones software for headsets uh, docking stations printers literally inventory every stinking piece of technology that exists in every environment and figure out how to monitor it figure out how to patch it automate as much as you can and the things that you can't automate figure out a way to take care of it manually get a schedule in play we code a lot we write a lot of custom scripts for things that there is no other automation to deal with so the types of tools and techniques that we have are far outside of the realm of capabilities of most IT departments for organizations of let's say 500 users or under so if that's you call us up get some assistance or I guess you could do it manually but you've no idea whether or not it's done because you don't have the automation inventory but please patch